0: Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology, OCAPs, and Board View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young
1: and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing anything on anyone's eyes.
0: Each week we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Well, what are we talking about this week, Andrew?
1: This week we are going to be chatting about toxoplasmosis, and probably not a bad idea to fit one in just a few days before OCAPs.
0: Especially the one that is the most common cause of posterior uveitis.
1: Indeed.
0: So let's talk about it. Andrew, what is toxoplasmosis?
1: In the whole taxonomy of various germs, it's a little bit weird. It's a protozoa, not a, not a bacteria, not a virus. And with that, you got to kind of dredge up all the old microbiology. It's an obligate intracellular parasite, so it really has to be inside. And it's got this kind of convoluted life cycle.
0: All right, the the life and times of toxoplasmosis. So there's three stages of the toxoorganism. There's the oocyst, I think I'm pronouncing that right, it's got two O's and then the word cyst after it. But the oocyst you can think of it as like the egg form. So these are made when the parasites are in their definitive host, which may be known in like the popular consciousness as cats, felines. <laughs> but we're gonna get we're gonna get to cats in a bit. Don't worry, friends and cat lovers out there. We're gonna get to cats in a bit. So they sexually reproduce in the intestines and then create these oocysts and then shed them like everywhere. So, so they'll end up highly concentrated in the feline feces and and then there they can develop in the soil and then get re-eaten and then at that point they can get eaten by any intermediate host and intermediate hosts are not just cats it can be a huge number of you know animals from mice or you know one of the more common ones but pigs lamb and humans which is why this is relevant to ophthalmology so when it gets eaten then it turns from its egg form to this infectious form called the tachyzoite and keep in mind it's not just eating the egg form that becomes infectious. If you eat something with these tachyzoites or the last form, bradyzoites, you can capture this infection too. But the tachyzoites, they cruise around in the bloodstream. So they're not just in the intestines where they reproduce, now they're in the bloodstream. And because they're in the bloodstream, they can affect any tissue. So that includes the eyes, but include things like the muscles, fat, etc. Finally, let's say that you are an unfortunate person who either consumed any form, or the toxoplasmosis parasite eventually if you're immunocompetent then your immune system is going to destroy these tachyzoites then it essentially forces them into this bradyzoite stage where they form a cyst that can hold a bunch of these bradyzoites which are sort of the dormant form of toxoplasmosis where they hide until some unspecified time later and they can evolve and cause problems again that's how it happens. You know, if you eat a pig that somehow got in contact with these uh, toxoplasmosis parasite and the bradyzoites or tachyzoites, you know, in their infected muscle, then you can also catch toxoplasmosis. It can be found in the water supply. It can be found in cat feces. But let's get into that. Yeah, this is the reason... <laughs> Why I wanted to do this episode. I don't really care about toxoplasmosis, but (laughs) cats, in my opinion, have been subject to character assassination in the media because of this association with toxoplasmosis. Okay, so first thing, they are the definitive host for toxoplasmosis, like felines in general. So uh, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with the advice that pregnant women should avoid interacting, especially with cat fecal material. Okay, like that's true. I'm not like going against any previously given medical advice, but my impression going through medical training is that most physicians, well, many physicians think that the primary way to become infected with toxoplasmosis is interaction with cat or cat feces, which is actually not true. In the developed world, the most common source of toxoplasmosis infection is undercooked meat. So that's really what you should, like the main thing, if you had to pick one that you try to avoid is interacting with undercooked meats, you know, especially things like pork. That's one of the most notorious. Pork and lamb are some of the most notorious agents for this. Uh, beef, apparently less so, for, for whatever reason. And if you have a cat at home, then you don't have to eye this cat suspiciously. In order for them to get toxoplasmosis, they need to interact with a toxoplasmosis life cycle. And the most common way for a cat to catch Toxoplasmosis is to eat an intermediate host, which is usually a mouse. So, if your cat is not like my cat is a house cat that has no mice to feast upon, the odds of him having toxoplasmosis are rather low. And I, at some point, I will test this to prove it. But um, uh. <laughs> you know, if it's an it, you know if it's an outdoor cat or you, there's a possibility that you know they they have eaten mice, then. Like, okay, fine. Like, you know, there, there's a reasonable chance that they have obtained toxoplasmosis at some point in their life cycle. How are but, you going to test this, Benjamin? <laughs> what? How are you going to test this? Oh, like a muscle biopsy. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. No, I'm, I'm joking. I love my, my, my cat.
1: <laughs> right. Um, listener, listener, beware. Benjamin Young is, can very fairly be described as a cat stan. I think I'm using that terminology correctly. I yeah, don't know.
0: Good job, Zoomer.
1: The, the, right.
0: Okay, here's some stats that are kind of scary about toxoplasmosis. It's hard to estimate how much of the general population has toxoplasmosis, but it can be very high. The BCSC says that the US has between a three and twenty-two percent infection rate of in the general population of systemic toxoplasmosis. Though the rates of ocular toxoplasmosis are only about point six to two percent. So, you know, you can remember about one percent. Of you know lifetime incidence of toxoplasmosis in the United States, which is very high. I mean that that is very high, but may, maybe not as high as in other countries like France, which somewhat famously has a fifty to eighty percent rate of systemic toxoplasmosis. And for some reason, there's a lot of literature about Brazil, which is what we're going to kind of compare things to, because Brazil is um, known to have approximately an eighty percent systemic rate. So eighty percent of the general population of Brazil, has toxoplasmosis at some point in their lifetime with an about 18% ocular infection rate. So almost 20% of their population has ocular toxoplasmosis. It was previously thought that all cases of ocular toxoplasmosis was congenital, was obtained when the patients were fetuses. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about the stats of congenital toxoplasmosis?
1: Uh, sure. Incidence of congenital acquisition of toxoplasmosis is only about 1 to 10 incidents out of every 10,000 births or so. And one subtlety here is that, uh, if you have toxoplasmosis as a woman before you're pregnant, that probably won't actually transmit to the fetus because the antibodies in the maternal blood supply will actually protect everything. So, the susceptible dangerous time seems to be if you, if the mother acquires it while she is pregnant, before she has antibodies, that's how it can be transmitted onto the fetus. And the earlier that the fetus does contract it, the worse the disease will be for the little, little human. Um, so if it's really early, it can even lead to a stillbirth, for example. So that's a lot of the reason why. Um, a lot of the nutritional guidelines and precautions told to pregnant women involve like avoiding all of this sort of raw and undercooked meat stuff. And um, you know, sorry Ben, but if a lady's told to avoid cats, it's probably for this reason.
0: I, I, I still agree. Like, if you're pregnant, avoid cats and cat poop. Like, you have no idea if they, you know, if they're gonna find an infecting rodent and all these things. Like, don't. Yeah. It's like don't. <laughs> I, just because I, I I love cats, those of you that you should uh, cat poop. <laughs> yeah. You know?
1: So at least for ocular manifestations, the stuff that congenital toxoplasmosis will do is retinochoroiditis. is the first big bad, of course. It's mostly a posterior uveitis thing, so of course there'll be retinochoroiditis. That is the first of what is usually termed the classic tetrad of manifestations. The others in that tetrad are not ocular, so we'll come back to the ocular stuff soon but the other three that can happen to a fetus or a newborn they're mostly neurologic related central neural system related like they can have hydrocephalus or microcephaly the third part of the tetrad is intracranial calcifications and the fourth is cognitive impairment other stuff that technically isn't in that tetrad of retinal hydrocephalus microcephaly intracranial calcifications cognitive impairment They can also get hepatosplenomegaly, and it often does lead to bilateral pediatric cataracts, too. Kind of a bit of a
0: weird grab bag of things, sorry. Never apologize. Um, Yeah, so if, if I don't know if everyone else had a mnemonic for this in med school, but you know, I just kind of remember three C's with toxoplasmosis. So cephalus, I know that's not really what hydrocephalus has, but. Like the C is hydros- hydrosophilus, is what I remember. Then calcifications that are intracranial calcifications, another C, and then cognitive impairment. So those are like the three. And then we should, as ophthalmologists, we should know that they can get retinocoroiditis too. It's like a fourth C, choroiditis. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can allow it. I'll allow it.
1: And you've got a note in here too, Ben, that uh, for these pediatric cases, if it gets to the eye, then those, that retinal choroiditis is more likely to be close to the macula or in the macula.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, congenital toxoplasmosis is much more devastating. And we won't, I this is probably the last we're going to specifically talk about congenital toxoplasmosis, but because it, you know, if they have it, manifestations in the eye, it tends to be in much more locations, much more severe. So if you've identified a patient as having congenital toxoplasmosis, even if, they don't have any ocular findings or even like systemic findings then many experts will recommend treating anyways to try to prevent them from ever getting retinal findings because once they get them then that, that could be game over so again previously there's and you know there may be other sources that kind of expound on this what I'll call a myth that any case of ocular toxoplasmosis was originally congenital you know Ryan's retina if you want to look at that has a great review to um, uh, disabuse this notion. You know, there's now numerous studies that support the idea that many cases of ocular toxoplasmosis were acquired (laughs) post-fetus. Okay, symptoms. What do patients with toxoplasmosis usually come in with? You know, it's basically a symptom of a focal posterior uveitis. So the, the most common thing that they'll come in with is symptoms that you'd expect with some vitritis. So that would be some blurry vision with a bunch of floaters. Um, so anytime you see someone who's young who has you know blurry vision and floaters, then that you, you should, you know, at least consider this and, and look for toxoplasmosis. They can also have a, a symptoms of anterior uveitis. Toxo can give you kind of this pan-uveitis picture where they have uh, anterior uveitis. And is also one of the causes of high eye pressure from uveitis.
1: Uh, The mnemonic that works for these sorts of high-pressure situations from inflammatory or infectious causes is HTTPSS, so a little like a URL website prefix, and the annoying one where you have to add an S, in this case two extra S's. Uh, So HTTPSS, each one stands for something. The first are any of the herpes viruses. So, H for herpes viruses, including the others, um, Zoster and such. The first T is for toxoplasmosis, subject of our episode. Second T is tuberculosis. The P is really Posner Schlossmann, but that Schlossmann part does not account for the two S's in the mnemonic, so it's just the P. So, H-T-T-P, and then the other two S's are sarcoid and syphilis.
0: Right. Yeah. So it's very useful to remember. I mean, we, we use it all the time clinically to help try to figure out do we need to inject these patients because they have a viral thing or whatnot. So um, I think this is a relatively high-yield uh, mnemonic to actually commit to memory.
1: I do want to mention another thing, too, um, about symptoms of toxoplasmosis. Of course, we want to focus on the ocular symptoms, but just in case you are the first person to encounter the following situation where somebody might also be having kind of weird neural de- deficits, focal neuro- neurologic deficits. If you're immunocompromised, toxoplasmosis can also affect the central nervous system, which can give you weird neurologic deficits. You definitely want to get neurology involved, but it can also manifest as ocular neurologic things like cranial nerve 3 palsy or gaze palsies or weird kinds of hemianopsias or quadrantinopsias. That's not as high yield, of course, but the neuro-ophthalmologists out there probably would want us to mention it.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get to exam of what patients with toxoplasmosis look like. So we already mentioned the anterior uveitis. It can cause a granulomatous anterior uveitis. So That means, remember, that they can get iris nodules or curative precipitates with their otherwise normal anterior uveitis. Now, the classic kind of pathognomonic Finding that, you know, if you hear this phrase, think toxoplasmosis, is headlight in a fog. But let's break down what that means. So the headlight is this really bright white lesion that you'll see in the retina. And I think something I want to emphasize that is kind of special about this is toxoplasmosis can give you these really hot white, like chalk white lesions. And you know it depends on what UVI to specialist you talk to, but it if you see something that's truly like chalk white, it's very commonly toxoplasmosis. It's hard for it to be other things. If it's just white and not like bright white, like looks almost like it's fluorescing or something. If it's just white, then it can be on a number of other infectious full thickness retinitis,es like uh, viral retinitis. Arn are things that that immediately come to mind. But if something is like chalk white, like it looks like it's glowing, that's how hot white it is, then like really think toxoplasmosis. I know there's one uveitis specialist who will say that that only can be toxoplasmosis, and I don't want to go that far. But that's the difference. And remember, when the retina gets that hot white, that means you have a full thickness retinitis. And that's a contrast to things like the white dot syndromes, where we call them white dot syndromes, but in my opinion, we should call them gray white dot syndromes because they're really not like white. They're. When you look at a true white dot syndrome, they look, the leashes look gray-white. And the reason for that is that those are not full thickness. The white dots and things like white dot syndromes are, you know, either in the outer retina or in the choroid. And they, they look gray-white because you're, they might look white if you peeled off the retina. But because of retina, it's this translucent grayish looking membrane over it. Then it looks kind of gray-white. It's kind of filtered. But here, if it's full thickness retinitis, it's not filtered. And it can look shockingly hot white. I hope that like helps you remember what what the headlight in the fog is and why it looks kind of different from other causes of vitritis. After these things heal, you know, as uh, RP specialists I know says, RP can do one of two things in response to injury: it can hypertrophy and make a scar, or it can just go away and die. So, in toxoplasmosis, both things can happen. They will often develop a scar, like this pigmented lesion where the old Toxo lesion was. But also, you can just see a complete absence of retina, choroid, and RPE. Kind of within that scar, you might just see spare sclera. It's, It's very possible. Classically, with these scars, the new lesion will be adjacent to the scar. You know, the idea, coming back to that life cycle thing we were talking about, is they had some infection at some point in the past. Then the immune system turned on it. And then turn those tachyzoids that were going buck wild and making things hot white, turn them into bratozoites so they just became this dormant cyst. But that dormant cyst is still there, and it's essentially impregnable to the immune system, and it will reactivate in that area. So if you see this like hot white, or if you see this white lesion right next to an old scar, then you've essentially diagnosed toxoplasmosis.
1: Nice, Ben. Can you clarify a point for me that I was, I think, I remembered somewhere mm-hmm. where. You might be able to distinguish congenital from acquired toxo if there is or is not a scar. So, like if you're completely new acquisition of toxoplasmosis in like a twenty year old or something, they might not have a scar from previous. Is that correct?
0: that is that is true. Um, a lot of texts will say, you know, if you see a lesion without an adjacent scar, consider this an atypical presentation for toxoplasmosis and broaden your differential substantially. So, you know, then you might want to also consider viral retinitis or, you know, or tuberculosis or syphilis or other uh, other causes of of retinitis. So, it, it's possible. It's certainly possible. Like you know, I've I've certainly seen it even in my my short career so far. But then it's not like an immediate slam dunk. If you see that. Yeah. Also consider that they may be immunocompromised if you see any atypical presentation, including a hot white lesion without a scar or multiple lesions in the periphery.
1: Hmm. Thank you, that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But for sure, the scar and the dense vitritis, those two things in combination. I remember even as a first-year optho resident, not really knowing anything, trying to figure all this stuff out while I was managing our inpatient consult service, I was like, I'm going to latch onto these two things. That's how I know it's toxo, and it's served right. us pretty well since. Right,
0: headlight in a fog because it will also almost always have some overlying vitreous inflammation. It doesn't have to be a lot, you know. It it could be only enough to like barely decrease someone's vision, like only by one line, maybe. So it can be like twenty twenty five vision or something, but still have a very active toxoplasmosis infection. Okay, so if you are a junior resident and learning about Toxo, like that is the main thing I want you to know. Like, if you're going to take away one thing from this episode, eject the cat stuff and keep the headlight and a fog stuff. Like that's that's how you're going to learn to identify Toxoplasmosis when you're on call. Now, if you're kind of a more advanced resident, then let's talk about other manifestations of Toxoplasmosis in the retina. I like to think that there are four ancillary interesting things that toxoplasmosis can do. So one of them is vasculitis, especially if a lesion is next to a retinal vessel, then it can cause vascular sheathing, you know, all the symptoms of of vasculitis uh, and findings of vasculitis with fluorescein angiography. So that's kind of ancillary thing number one, but it's important to distinguish that from ancillary thing number two, which is this thing that I think is super interesting, with a horrible name um Andrew do you want to try to say it so i don't embarrass myself oh
1: man uh, chirolate Chyro- uh. Kyroly- chirolysis Kyri- chirolysis
0: no oh, man <laughs> yeah, it's, apologies to dr Kiralis, Kyri- yeah. <laughs> i think is is that what it's named after a guy or a woman i'm sorry. spanish
1: it's it's the one with the <laughs> ky. yeah it's, it's
0: spelled k y r e l i E-S-I-S. So, chirolysis arteriolitis, which inherently to me is a misnomer. You know, it's called an arteriolitis, the itis implying inflammation. But almost by definition, this is actually not an inflammation. What it is, is you can get the segmental arterial plaques. So, in the arteries, you'll see like a white thing in the artery, and then it'll be a normal artery, and then a, a thing in the white artery. So it's almost like these like, kind of skip lesions of white stuff in the artery. This can very much look like fasculitis, because it, it looks like you have the sheathing of the, the retinal vessel. It looks like it's infected, but then when you do your fluorescein angiogram, there's going to be no leakage there. What it's thought to actually represent is plaque formation within the arteries that for some reason form in the skip-like pattern. And, you know, as far as my reading, you know, there is honestly not a ton of literature out there on it. Just some imaging, you know, studies because it's not the most common thing to see. It's not known why these things happen, but they are not completely pathognomonic for toxoplasmosis. Other rare things like tuberculosis can also cause it. But, you know, it certainly pushes one towards toxoplasmosis if you see that in addition to other findings. So, yeah, if you see that, don't necessarily panic That they have retinal vasculitis and also need immediate steroids to prevent vision loss. Okay, Uh, the third thing that is an interesting finding in toxoplasmosis is uh, something called Janssen's juxtapapillary um, uh, retinitis. This is like pretty. This is more historical. It's essentially just toxo that's found near the nerve, so it can make the nerve look swollen so it like it can make one think that someone's an optic neuritis but it's not you know it's not really so you'll see this in like super you know the super old papers i don't know if you guys ever go to pubmed and try to find these classic papers and they're clearly like scanned in cuz like the the thing the pdf you're reading is like all like diagonal and like anti-aliased but it you know it's a thing so that this one that one's not very high yield at all but the last one is like a little bit more interesting it's punctate outer retinal toxoplasmosis so this is where someone can have these usually pretty well demarcated small multifocal outer retinal lesions. So you can have a bunch of these little things that are like these all kind of punched out sort of looking lesions. You know, that can be a part of like kind of a normal toxoplasmosis. So you should certainly not diagnose someone with toxoplasmosis based on that alone. So again, to review the kind of four ancillary things that I think are valuable to know are um, frank vasculitis, especially if the lesions right next to a major vessel. This kyrolesis arteriolitis, which has these segmental plaques that can trick you into thinking they have vasculitis. Janssen's juxtapapillary lesion, which is really just, it might be Janssen, by the way. I, I think, is Janssen like a Swedish name? I have no idea. Is it uh, Jansen? I have no idea. I don't know. Which really is just, you know, if a lesion's near a nerve, then you might be tricked into thinking they have optic neuritis. And then this punctate outer retinal toxoplasmosis that now let's talk about like some more kind of atypical findings that should make you concerned. Andrew, you brought this up when we were kind of um reviewing for the episode yesterday. Here, do you want to tell us about one thing that should make you that should give you pause or may, maybe make you consider toxoplasmosis when you previously wouldn't have?
1: Yeah, because what Ben has described as the typical presentation for the posterior uveitis, but sometimes the neuro ophthalmologists will point out they can a typically present with neuroretinitis, in which case even the retina portion of the problem looks a little different, it'll look more like this striated macular star. Easy to look up to double check what I'm talking about. In those cases the neuroretinitis, with the macular star being the retinal component, the nerve component just is optic nerve edema, usually. And the main takeaway there is: watch out again, because if you see that, then you have to worry that the patient may be immunocompromised or something, and might have it in their brain too. And then you might be dealing with a much bigger problem than you
0: thought you were. Yeah, definitely. We should do a neuroretinitis, neuroretinitis episode at some point. But that is um, very, very, very—it's very good to have it on your differential for sure.
1: Also, further implicating cats, (laughs) right?
0: Because the other, the most common cause of neuroretinitis is Bartonella, which is definitely, unfortunately, definitely a cat thing. So, uh, But not a reason to declaw your cats. Don't declaw your cats. This is my PSA. Don't don't do it. It's (laughs) very mean. It's cutting off a knuckle. Okay, whatever. Oh, okay. okay. Back to immunocompromise. If they have multiple large hot white lesions, then be very worried that they might be immunocompromised. Or if you know they are, then you can expect them to have multiple lesions. A very unfortunate example of this is if you see someone with Let's say vitreous haze, but you didn't find the toxo lesion, and you start them on steroids or inject steroids because you thought it was autoimmune. Then they can develop multiple hot, white, large uh, toxo lesions. So, uh, you know, you definitely always want to think about toxoplasmosis when you see a panuveitis patient because giving them steroids will just, you know, can can really make things game over.
1: So this episode is a little difficult because we're talking about a very specific etiology. Of conditions like vitritis or, you know, terrible chorioretinitis that have actually huge differentials. So not only do you have to think about toxoplasmosis, but you have to think about a lot of other things. And we'll probably have a different differentials episode for those things yeah. like
0: check out
1: P O R N, porn, ARN, all that we, stuff. We already
0: did our ARN episode, so check that out. Oh, sorry, sorry, right. No, oh, no, no, it's okay. I forget sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> we, when I'm writing an episode. Because you know, obviously, I like you know, will like write these things for like residents or whatever too for like imaging conference. I'll be writing like the episode or, or, or doing you know like doing my research for the episode, and I'll think like, wait, I've already done this. Like, did we already do an episode <laughs> of this? I forgot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, then I like scroll through like, wait, did we do it? Do oh no, okay, I just did it for like, um, like a resident <laughs> talk. So, <laughs> anyways, well, let's talk about diagnosis. It's yeah. the diagnosis. is primarily primarily clinical, like we just said, but sometimes you need lab evidence to back you up. That lab evidence is a little tricky to use. Classically, one can try to do antibody testing. Remember, IgG is a chronic antibody, but the problem is that lasts for life. And as we yammered on about before about cats, if one, you know, there's a fairly high prevalence in the U.S. population, and if your patient comes from another country, they may have an even dramatically higher rate of having it, just a systemic without ocular manifestation version of toxoplasmosis. So because IgG lasts for life, I guess what I'm trying to say is it can be useful to exclude a diagnosis. Like if they have a negative IgG, then it's pretty hard to say that they have toxoplasmosis. Though I will say the IgG only becomes positive after two weeks. So that's why you should get an IgM, which we'll talk about in a little bit too. And maybe even IgA, which comes up even quicker. But if it's a positive IgG, t- take that with like a very large a huge grain a, of salt. Very, yeah. very like hard to you know, n- non-cooking size of gra- you know, grain of salt. Like too big for your <laughs> pan.
1: Put another way, seropositivity with antibodies and stuff, especially IgG is Very sensitive, Mm -hmm. but not specific
0: at all. Yeah, exactly.
1: And even the sensitivity part is just because most of us have it. Like, I don't have cats. I'm horribly allergic to it. But even just visiting Ben's apartment and seeing that little knucklehead Watson... Is probably enough to have given me some antibodies against it. Okay, Watson is uh, not not implying Watson is
0: diseased. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Because he, he's just not like athletic enough to catch a mouse. Thank God. But <laughs> it, it, if the, the listener is interested, you can uh, want to see what Watson looks like. You can look find his Instagram, which is Elementary My Dear Seventy Nine. If you want to uh, check out what Watson looks like, he's a, a beautiful. I board. might
1: steal a picture of him to put on for the episode picture, I, and you're going to hate for I would me for be
0: it.
1: forever associated.
0: Incredibly <laughs> insulted because that means when people <laughs> just Google toxoplasmosis, they may find a picture of Watson, <laughs> which is upsetting. Don't do it. What What else is useful besides IgG? We mentioned IgM and IgA. So IgM it was more quick acting I mean, globulin, um, you know, it's only persistent about a year after contracting toxoplasmosis. However, remember that, let's say that you caught toxoplasmosis when you were one or when you were a fetus, and then you had these symptoms when you were 20 or 25 or something. Your IgM will not become positive when the toxoplasmosis reactivates because the bradyzoites can be isolated just to the eye, so you may not mount a serologic immune response to the toxoplasmosis when it reactivates. So that, that's why the IgM and you know even things like, things like IgA are not also not useful. What could be more useful in 2021 is getting a PCR. So instead of looking for the antibodies, looking for the DNA of the toxoplasmosis itself, you can, in theory, get either an aqueous or vitreous PCR. This is... A fellow talking. In my experience, I find aqueous PCR is more than sufficient. If you the diagnosis is, is in doubt, I would almost I'd be very hard pressed to put a patient at risk to, with a vitreous tap to get a PCR sample. But aqueous PCR should be enough. Okay, we've identified someone has it. What do I do, Andrew? Do I just start them on this mythical uh, triple therapy thing that I have to memorize every time I study? <laughs> no just kidding. Right away. Um,
1: well, this triple actually <laughs> I. I was a little dreadful that you might leave this part to me because it is confusing. I see so many different approaches and I my understanding is it might be a little kind of case dependent, right? Because if the person is actually got a healthy immune system, you might not need to do anything. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you go, I, I'm going to take the ball right back. You know, it's a, kind of like double pass. Thank thing, you. you know, that, that sports people do. Um, so... Toxoplasmosis is self-limiting and fully functional immune system. It it will almost always go away in like one to two months, six to eight weeks. Then the lesion will consolidate and then the thing will scar and then they'll be done. You know, it takes months to scar, but the the thing will scar and then they'll be done. Treatment is not to eradicate the disease. So the only time you want to treat is when you want to try to shorten the amount of time that the toxo will turn into that tachyzoite form where it can replicate it to more quickly turn it back into its bradyzoite form. So I think it's going to be easier to remember the classic scenario of toxoplasmosis where you don't treat. If it's not within this classic paradigm, then you do, 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 do treat. And I took this from Ryan's retina. The BCSE essentially has the same paradigm. It's very similar. But if the patient has a classic example, which is a peripheral, single, small, let's say small, less than a disc diameter, lesion with mild inflammation. And when I say mild inflammation, the best way to determine the inflammation, because you know you could, there, there's a vitreous grading system, which we can go into in another episode. But basically, the thing to remember is if it only worsens your vision by about one line on the vision chart, and if it improves in about a month, so definitely follow these patients in, a, in about a month at least, then you don't need to treat. But if it is not does not fall into that paradigm, then you probably should treat. So what are those scenarios? If the nerve or fovea are threatened, so if it's central enough that it could affect a nerve or fovea. You know, even the even the fovea hopefully makes a lot of sense why you don't want a big old scar in the fovea. But the nerve is important too, because remember, this is full thickness. If it's next to nerve, can knock out a whole fiber bundle, which our glaucoma friend on the call can tell you is like, no, no bueno, no bueno.
1: <laughs> you don't need a glaucoma person to tell you. Yeah, that. exactly,
0: exactly. If their vit- inflammation causes a two-line or worse drop in vision. So if they have enough inflammation, then uh, that may be reason to start treatment. If it's big, again, I said bigger than one disc diameter, that's enough reason to treat. Or if they don't improve over four weeks, there's a bunch of lesions, but not just one, or they're immunocompromised. And those are all reasons to initiate treatment. What is treatment? What's the classic triple therapy I was just alluding to?
1: The classic stuff is stuff you won't remember and recognize because it's not what you see your attendings use for your patients anymore.
0: For numerous reasons.
1: But the, Right. But the old school stuff is one, one part of the triplet is pyrimethamine. The other part is sulfadiazine and the prednisone. The kind of secret one that's not technically in the triplet, but really should be given along with it is folinic acid. Because if you remember, oh boy, way back to med school biochemistry, how some drugs interfere with this like tetrahylohydrofolate kind of thing where it also inhibits the production of folic acid in the same way that it's uh, just by its mechanism of action. Folic acid production is an innocent bystander victim. The folinic acid uh, supplementation will kind of get you around that pitfall. Technically, there's also something called... Quadruple therapy, which is if you add clindamycin to all this stuff, but these are pretty tough med- medications to tolerate, yeah. and it's a lot easier to give also something similar to it. In an, which uh, I'll pass off to you again, Benjamin, to talk about the modern treatment for it.
0: Yeah, and just also to elaborate, it's also just hard to get these drugs. So pyrimethamine. I don't know if anyone else remembers when this guy Martin Shkreli got big in the news because he was he his company had purchased the rights to produce the drug pyrimethamine and then he jacked up the price like a thousand percent or something I'd, I'd have to look up the exact amount that uh yeah here we go Turing Pharmaceuticals increased it by 50-fold. so I think it's like a, what a five thousand percent increase in price when you do the math apparently it leads to a full course of treatment to cost $75,000. But yeah, this, that and even sulfadiazine are, are difficult to get. And you know that, so these are many reasons why we don't use them, though we still have to remember them because of the classic therapy that in theory could still use for toxoplasmosis. In reality today, most clinicians will use Bactrim. That's kind of their go-to. The other two, you can kind of remember, it's easy as ABC, so the other two that you can use systemically are zithromycin. It's thought to work very similarly, though there aren't, by the way, there aren't really great trials to show, there's one kind of smaller trial that shows Bactrim is essentially equivalent to triple therapy, but there's not great trials to show that all these things work, but clinically, you know, folks have not really reported big misses with these, so it's accepted that what we can use these drugs. So it's Bactrim, Azithromycin and Clindamycin. So you can kind of remember ABC. Um, often people use them with prednisone, but remember you can't just give them prednisone without these meds or they'll get their disease can explode. <laughs> and then lastly, if a patient for some reason can't tolerate PO medications like they're allergic to Bactrim or something or um, another case that this may be common is if they're pregnant and you don't want to give them something like Bactrim because remember that's like a whole Neural tube, the, all all these bad things of pregnancy. Then you can inject intravitroclindamycin clindamycin with uh, dexamethasone because that's a short-acting steroid that can go into the eye.
1: In general, um, you decide to inject versus give oral forms, not just if they're pregnant, right? It's also if uh, if they're not responding well right. enough it's, to the oral stuff. That's a,
0: that's a great point. Like if the oral by itself is not doing it, then you can kind of sort of supplement therapy by injecting as well. Okay. And then I guess the last comment we'll make about treatment, you know, there's some to do about prophylaxis. There are some patients who recurrently get toxoplasmosis. And, you know, then one can consider putting them on Bactrim as prophylaxis. Like a suppressive maintenance exactly, dose, I guess. Exactly. The tough thing, though, is that there's, um, I think, one or two studies that seem to show that Bactrim is mainly effective as a prophylactic agent only while they're on the Bactrim. So it's not like you can put them on it for six months and hope that wipes out the britozoid or the cause of the recurrent disease. You have to keep them on it for as long as you want to suppress your disease, which obviously can have problems down the line. This is, I think, much less high yield, but relevant for residents, especially third-year residents right now, is there is some thought that in any intraocular surgery, including cataract surgery, May lead to reactivation of toxoplasmosis. There are certainly cases of this. You know, I'm not aware of like a, a randomized trial or anything that that shows it, but there are certainly cases of this. So, if you are about to do cataract surgery on someone, and remember, toxo is pretty dang common among uveitides, consider prophylactic medication or steroids to prevent that reactivation. You know, if you're just a general ophthalmology resident, I wouldn't do this solo. I'd consult your friendly local. UVI to specialists to get their thoughts on it to help you with dosing and everything. But just because cataract surgery is so common and toxo is so common, we figured we'd mention at least considering it before um, doing cataract surgery on your, on your patient. Great point. And that's all we have for this week. If you like we heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number 4.
1: And we have our website at eyes4ears.com with the number 4 also. And various social media accounts, which... Uh, Man, I'm always impressed that you
0: keep up with it pretty well, Ben. No, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's all right. Yeah, it's not. It's like a tweet between cases, you know, between all our cases. And if you're gearing up for OCAPS and found our podcast helpful throughout, and you want to support the podcast, then a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you found us is extremely helpful to us.
1: Good luck on the test, guys. See you. <laughs> technically, the week after, but if you take a little vacation
0: it's well deserved. Yeah, if you take a according to our <laughs> metrics a 6 month vacation that we do not <laughs> do not uh we take no insult. Bye. Bye.